1: One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator.
2: Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, Max. Who is on the program? This week on the show is Molly Lambert. Molly Lambert is a uh, writer. Aaron, I know that you were a big fan of her writing at this recording. Shout outs to this recording. You loved this recording. I've loved Molly's writing for a long time. But now, tell me if this uh, sounds familiar to either of you guys. She doesn't write as much anymore. She's uh, doing podcasts. And she has a new show out. It actually just wrapped. It's called Heidi World. And it is the definitive account of Heidi Fleiss, the L.A. badum. It sounds a little different than most podcasts. She cast like I think sixty-eight people to play different roles in the story. So it's uh, it's got all these actors and podcasters you've heard of, and it was as we talked about, sort of the first thing that she was really in total control of. And it turns out Polly Lambert likes being in total control. I I'm going to say that I don't know if you got into this, but she she has another podcast. That is uh, about the uh, reality TV program, Below Deck. Here's the deal. I have seen every episode of Below Deck. I want to come on her Below Deck podcast. She's probably going to listen to this episode that she's on. And so I'm sending a very special request to Molly Lambert. Have me on your Below Deck podcast. I have a lot of thoughts. We didn't get into her Below Deck podcast, so when you are eventually on it, we'll just run it as a bonus episode on long form too, so people can listen. <laughs> uh, we are brought to you in partnership with Vox, who help us make the show. Thanks to everyone at Vox. And now here's Max with Molly Lambert. Molly Lambert, welcome to the podcast.
3: Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, thanks for being
2: here. I feel like uh, this one is a long time coming. I, I'm i like scared to even look at my email and see when the first time I emailed you and asked you to come on the show. Because uh, it was a long time ago. It's
3: been a long journey.
2: It has. And yet here we are. And I feel like it was worth the wait, because you've got this podcast out, which I have so many questions about.
3: For sure. Yeah. A podcast out called Heidi World, The Heidi Fly Story and the Secret History of L.A.
2: I told someone this morning that I was going to talk to you and I was like, she just did this whole podcast about Heidi Fleiss and this person, who I will not name, said, who's Heidi Fleiss?
3: A lot of people don't know who Heidi Fleiss is, which I found out from doing this podcast. Um, it was a big story in the 90s, especially in LA, where I am from, and I feel like everybody older than me is like so familiar with it and it turns out that everybody younger than me doesn't know anything about it. So another great reason to make a podcast about it. She was a Hollywood madam in her 20s and got busted. And I just was always fascinated with this story because I thought it was crazy. I thought just even at the time I was like, why are they busting her? Why is this bad? You know, what aren't there other things going on in the city of Los Angeles? It's been super fun making a big podcast about it because I've learned so much
2: how old were you when the story broke? Like, you were in L.A. I
3: was in L.A. I was 10.
2: It was 10, and it was a big enough story that a 10-year-old in L.A. knows who Heidi Fleiss is.
3: Yeah. And, like, specifically me, probably, also. <laughs> Why is that? Because I'm the type of 10-year-old who would be like, ooh, what is going on? What are the adults talking about? <laughs> no, but I mean, it was a huge story, and it, and it it went on for, like, a few years. So So it started when I was, like, 10, but by the time it was done, I was probably, like, 14 or something, you know, and I was forming my ideas about like sex and about how sex works and sells things. And so it made a big impression on me on that front because I think it was just the first time I'd ever thought, well, why is it illegal for a woman to sell her body? Doesn't it belong to her? Can't she sell it if she wants to, you know? And that really informed a lot of the stuff I've done. Just my whole writing career has been just one of the big things I'm really interested in is like, you know, the subjectivity of of women who get to be objects. And so I thought this, yeah, this is this is a real, a really interesting story about all that stuff.
2: And was this a story that you've wanted to do for a long time? Like is there a reason is is there a reason that you did it now?
3: I pitched it as, you know, I want to do a podcast about the Heidi Fly story from a pro sex work angle. Because that was also what I noticed at the time was that it's like that was the third rail is that none of the people reporting on it would ever say like, what if this were legal, you know, and I didn't, didn't make any sense. It was like, why isn't it, why didn't you just make it legal? Why don't you just make it so that nobody gets in trouble and also nobody gets hurt, you know? And I just pitched it like that because I thought there were just like a bunch of things happened in LA in the early 90s. And one of them was the LA riots. And then a couple years after the LA riots, you had the Heidi Fleiss trial and the OJ Simpson trial. And my feeling about it was that they both were just like a referendum on LA a couple years after the riots. And they both were kind of these attempts by the city to be like, look over here. Don't pay attention to any of the real issues we've been having and all the racist police and corrupt officials you know instead we're going to make scapegoats of like an individual person and we can project everything that's bad onto them so Heidi also got it It was like everybody got obsessed with her they're obsessed with the scandal and then when the OJ scandal broke that was a bigger story so they kind of like tossed her aside to go to the OJ trial instead but just you know there was a lot of stuff coming out about the OJ trial which is obviously also a big deal and also very just like formative for me in terms of like, okay, well, like, why are people feeling the different ways they feel, you know, what, this is a litmus test for like a hundred things and it's complicated. It's like very shades of gray. Like, you know, he murdered his wife, but also the LAPD murder black people constantly in Los Angeles and like all of these things affect how people feel about, this trial, you know? And the the ESPN doc that came out about OJ, which I've watched like a million times, I just thought was so good. And I thought, I want to do this, but for Heidi Fleiss and take it on from this sort of like prismatic perspective of like, here's every angle on this story. But also, you know, like, like the OJ trial, it's like focused around this one incredibly charismatic person.
2: That's so interesting that Ezra Edelman's doc was like your... North Star, you know, the OJ doc's like non-narrated. It's all talking heads. And Heidi World, it's just so you for very long stretches. It's really like Molly Lambert's Heidi World.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I also thought if I'm going to do this, it has to be more than just me regurgitating stuff that people might already know. And I didn't know going into it, but I was like, The more I got into the research, I was like, oh, yeah, this is me. This is like my story in a lot of ways. I'm also like a half Jewish girl from like not Beverly Hills, you know, from the Valley who like feels alienated by a lot of aspects of of Los Angeles and especially about just, you know, picked up very early on that like the class issues in L.A. are fucking insane and that they're so extreme.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not surprising to hear you say that. I I wouldn't think that you would say that you think it's the best place in the world, but it also is like clearly very dear to you.
3: Yeah. I love it. It's very like, you know, I'll talk shit about my mother, but don't you dare ever say anything, you know? (laughs) Yeah, totally. People talk so much shit about LA or they used to, now it's less, less like that. Now they talk, now they're too nice about it. Um, that I, always, that I did end up getting, you know, sort of defensive. I think I grew up in LA, like, I got to go to the East Coast. And then I went to the East Coast and was like, I got to go back to California. <laughs> <laughs> but I think people just started telling me like, wow, you're such an LA person. And I was like, what does that mean? It doesn't seem like a compliment when people say that usually.
2: Yeah. Do you have a sense of what that means now? Like, what's your definition of being an LA person?
3: I am such an L.A. person. I think what they were trying to say is that I sound like Drew Barrymore, which is also for sure true. And I also was like, it'd be fun to make a podcast where it's just in my voice because I sound like Drew Barrymore. And I kind of hate a lot of like fancy podcast narration. And I was like, I'm just going to do it (laughs) like you're talking to me and how I would tell you all of these stories. But I think maybe also it's just like I'm always very interested in like the high and the low and where they intersect and so the Heidi story too it's like the absolute like scum of the earth is present in both Hollywood and like the vice underground i thought was so kind of funny fucked up and funny i mean fucked up and funny is all over the show that's what i thought yeah that's what i wanted i was like it's funny it's just it all is so funny everybody's such a funny weirdo it's very like inherent vice to me that was also a big touchstone for this was like Inherent Vice and Vineland, the Thomas Pynchon novel, which is about like 80s children of the 60s, like people with 60s parents and then, you know, 80s kids. And that's kind of what the show's about too, about just like after the gold rush, you know, like what happens after sort of the, the hippie dream has failed and then people just want to make so much money. And Heidi is very much like, the person who rebels against her 60s parents by being like, I'm gonna be the most, you know, 80s, 90s person on earth and just try to make so much money.
2: Right. It's all that it's all that matters to her. It's like the straight materialistic stuff. Can I can I ask you some specific making a podcast questions? Yeah, of course. I mean, you've been podcasting for a long time, but had you ever done something like this before that was this like written and scripted and narrative?
3: No, not at all. I had never done a narrative podcast. I've only done like conversational podcasts and I really wanted to do a narrative one. And it just seemed also like there was this wave of kind of like nonfiction narrative podcasts that I really liked. And uh, specifically Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This. Um, Karina's an old friend of mine. And Lillian Ollick's uh, Tracy Lord's podcast, so I talked to both of them. I said, Hey, how do I do this? What do you guys recommend? Like, what was your methodology for making a podcast? And I asked Karina, too, Like, hey, is it cool if I do this? Would you, am I, am I getting into your territory if I do this? And she was like, No, of course not. Like, do it.
2: She gave you, her, she gave you her blessing.
3: <laughs> yeah. She gave me her blessing. She was like, I mean, I'm very like, everyone just should just make a podcast, especially women. I tell women, like, yeah, just do it. Just research something you think is interesting. And it takes just like there's such a low barrier of of entry to to make one. You just need a mic.
2: Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of podcast producers who just heard that and like cringed because there's like all kinds of sound design going on in this no, show. I but mean,
3: it does. It has we have four incredible producers, and they do the sound design, and they help me work through sort of like the scripts and all that stuff. It's yeah, it's very like I think I also wanted to seem kind of like tossed off, but it's it's been worked on a lot. So I wanted to feel casual, but not, you know, not feel overproduced and overworked, but it's it's for sure very produced and we worked on it a lot.
2: Well that's part of my question is like, how did the experience of making it line up with whatever your expectations were? Like, was it harder than you thought it was going to be? How how was it different?
3: I just had this like crazy idea to cast like a hundred people in it that I thought would be fun. But also it kind of went with this idea I had of like the expansive. I wanted to make shortcuts. I wanted to make Robert Altman shortcuts, basically, and just have like a huge ensemble cast. And so I reached out to Annie Hamilton first before I even started writing and said, hey, I would love for you to play Heidi Fleiss in this podcast. I saw her I met her in real life through my friend Nomi Fry and then I just started following her on Instagram. She makes these incredible Instagram videos where she's like walking around talking to people. She just had this incredible charisma where I was like this person and she's an actress and I was like she'd be perfect. She'd be the best Heidi Fleiss because she has this quality of like she can talk you into anything and she's just you can't look away from her. And so she said yes, and so that was great. And then I asked my friend Max Silvestri to play Yvonne Nagy. Max is a really incredible comedian. He's my my old friend from college, and he also, like, he, like, watched all these videos of Yvonne Nagy and, like, did a, learned how to do a Hungarian accent. Just, like, everybody did such a great job and worked so hard, and, you know, that's not even me. That's just, like, I hired good actors is the number one thing, I would say.
2: And was that the plan from the jump? Because like, there's there's another way that you could have approached it, which is like, lots of these people are alive.
3: Well, yeah, everyone's alive. And so, when I first started, I was like, I could, you know, interview people. I could go out to people. Honestly, I didn't want to get sued. So, you know, somebody was like, why don't you talk to Charlie Sheen? And I was like, if I talk to Charlie Sheen, he might be like, no, you can't do this. Like, you can't talk (laughs) about this on a podcast. Like, fuck you. So. It was also just that when I started doing the research, because I just started going in the archive, because Karina told me, she said, get a newspapers.com subscription, which I did. And I just started looking on the internet and looking at old LA Times, you know, going in the LA Times archives and seeing like, what's the first mention of Heidi Fleiss and finding out that like the first mentions are actually of her father, of Dr. Paul Fleiss, you know, and kind of going from there. And just as I got into it, I found out that there was so much archival material and so many quotes from everybody in all of these stories that I thought, hey, I'll bet, you know, wouldn't it be fun to like do this as a radio drama, basically using all this stuff that people actually said at the time and recreating the entire world, you know, that this took place in. I just thought that would be cool. And then I just, you know, Got really insane and was like, "I'm Orson Welles now. I'm going to <laughs> going to create a you know a radio theater ensemble." And actually, like I did do, I was a playwright. I won a bunch of young playwright contests.
2: What were your plays about?
3: My plays were about um, the one that won me the New York Young Playwrights Contest was about a hot dog vendor and an ice cream vendor getting in like a philosophical war (laughs) about like who who's more pure because uh the ice cream vendor says it's like if you sell ice cream in the winter it's like it's more it's more meaningful because people really want it if they get it it was a ripoff of edward Albee's the zoo story (laughs) and uh it got produced off broadway and it was incredible no shit that's amazing how old were you when you wrote it? Well, I it won when I was 16 and then it like took a while. They were like a year behind for some reason. So then it got produced when I was 17 when I was in college.
2: This is making more sense about why you, as like a 10 and 11 year old, were like, there's something about this Heidi Fly story that doesn't make sense to me.
3: I mean, I was extremely in Ma- in Rushmore when Max Fisher says that thing about like I wrote a little one act about Watergate. Like that was very that was me. I was and I <laughs> still love Watergate. Um, but yeah, I think um I think I realized doing this that like maybe maybe I have this like secret desire to direct like a hundred people and something. <laughs> um
2: and, and you did all the directing for this too?
3: Yeah, kind of. Well, so I directed most of the main actors, mostly Annie, but because of COVID, we basically it's like I I learned a lot from doing it too, where I'm like, if I'm, if I were to do it again, there's things I would do differently that I only could learn from doing them wrong or having issues. Like what? Our plan was to bring everybody into a studio. um, All, you know, there's actually 68 people in the podcast, but because of COVID, we couldn't do that. So we ended up sending out mics to everybody that we could. I kind of, I, I kind of love how it turned out because of that because it's like it's a little scrappy and I think that actually works for it because that's really what I wanted was for it not to sound like really overproduced and and to sound a little bit kind of like fun and and you know indie and you said
2: that a couple of times can you just um, articulate your gripe with the like overproduced podcast
3: I just I, I know what I don't like there's a lot of stuff I don't like and I know it when I hear it and. There's a type of super overproduced style where there's just like bells and whistles constantly that I think people do a lot because they can, you know, and, and I didn't want to sound overproduced, but I also didn't want it to sound like we were making it in the saw basement, (laughs) you know, so hopefully it caught the middle of that somehow. But yeah, I I mean, it was just a lot of like sending mics out to people and then having to like be like oh, we you forgot to say your name at the end. Could we get you to say your name? It was a lot of just kind of like rolling with the punches with it. So that means a lot of people directed themselves is what I'm saying. Um, everybody who has like one line, which is a lot of people, for the most part, it's like if I gave them a note, you know, they did the note. But otherwise they were just like... its It's also because I hired them because I knew they would do a good job. You know, I cast the actors and then I cast podcasters and then I cast just kind of friends of mine. But everybody I cast in the show is somebody whose work I admire and who I like and who I think does cool stuff themselves, you know? So a lot of it was also just wanting to put people in the show whose fan bases I thought might be into the show because I was like, well, I like their stuff. Maybe if I put them in the show, like they'll, you know, tell their listeners to listen. It was very like mercenary of me <laughs> to be like, I'll put everyone who has a good successful podcast that I like, but. It was very like personally satisfying to do all of this. I don't I, I think I just I learned a lot about myself, which is that it turns out I like to be in control.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Have you not felt like in control on your other projects in this way?
3: I think it's just like I'd done collaborative stuff before. I've only done I mean, I did a podcast by myself for a minute at Grantland called the the Lambert Report. That was just me interviewing people, but I've always done conversational podcasts, and so I think maybe in a way I'd avoided being in charge. I was like, I like to collaborate. I like working with other people. I don't need to put myself in a situation where everything's on me. And then when I did put myself in a situation where everything was on me, I was like, whoops, I love it. Whoops, I love to be in charge. It's fun to conduct an orchestra. It feels great. And... I don't think I realized when I started doing it that, like, maybe it hadn't been done before also. Like, I was just kind of like, like, everybody was kind of like, you're crazy. Like, that's so many people, (laughs) you know? Even my friends who do that kind of podcast were like, wow, that's a lot of actors. (laughs) But I kind of thought that would be, like, in tune with the kind of sprawl of the story
0: 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.
1: Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code VIATOR10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more
2: with Viator. How long were you working on it for?
3: I worked on it for a year. That's the longest I've ever worked on one thing ever. So I had a lot of time to sort of just work on it. And I also talked to Jamie Loftus, who I think does incredible stuff. And she'd been doing, you know, that's also how I thought I could pitch it to iHeart was that Jamie had done this Lolita podcast that looked at Nabokov's Lolita through this kind of like prism of all these different subjects and and things associated with it. And so I asked Jamie and I asked Karina, I just said to people, like, how long were your scripts? Like, how many pages? Like, how, you know, what do I do? And then after that, it was like, okay, I'm writing a blog post and I'm going to read it out loud. Why didn't I think of this before? You know, like, all of my writing that I've ever done, I think, has like a conversational bent to it, is meant to read kind of conversationally what if I just was talking, you know? It's so funny. It's just like, I've been in the industry for a long time and to be like, wait, I can just do the same thing. But if I read it out loud and now it's a podcast.
2: That was one of the things I was really interested in was, was how connected to your writing it felt. Cause it it felt that way to me listening to it. Like, it just felt like Molly writing.
3: Yeah. I mean, I have a, have a style and people who have listened, my friend was like, oh, it's like listening to you tell a story, except like it has a point at the end. <laughs> 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 it's like being with you when you're like going off on some tangent, except then you actually come back to something.
2: Do you miss writing?
3: I mean, no, because this is writing. It's like I have always just been a journeyman. So it's like, I'll do it. I'll I'll go where the money is, but also... I don't know. I think this is like, I like listening to people talk. Also, I think it's just like, it feels like a natural extension of like, oh, if you liked my writing voice, maybe you will like my actual voice. And also I sound like Drew Barrymore. Now you will know.
2: Do you think that you're doing it because podcasting is where the money is?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think the magazine industry is dead. I think um, magazines and blogs and stuff are are done and not coming back so I definitely made a concerted effort to like put my my energy towards podcasting because that's uh more of an industry right now yeah but I'm also you know I'm trying to get into film and tv uh it was also a little bit of a a mercenary thought there of like I'm going to reverse engineer you know making something that is basically a tv show but as a podcast
2: I mean, it totally feels that way. Like, you can you can just see the TV in it from the first, like, five minutes.
3: I can't believe they haven't done it. That was part of what this came out of, was I thought, I can't believe there is an American Crime Story, Heidi Fleiss, and, uh, you know, Ryan Murphy, call me. Just think about the stunt casting. Yeah, right? I mean, I thought of it as, like, I want to make, like, a low-budget indie movie, but as a podcast, you know? It's like, to make a 10-episode anything that feels like a complete work- Has been so satisfying for me, just personally as like a creative person. It's been like, it just feels like a culmination of everything I've ever done. You know, because I think the other longest thing I ever did was probably my porn awards piece, Porntopia for Grantland, which was about the adult video news awards. Which when I did it, a lot of people were like, "Hey, David Foster Wallace already did this," and I was like, "Yeah," and he didn't talk to any porn stars about how they feel about being a porn star, which is the main thing I was interested in. You know, when I was a kid too, this is, I think what broke my brain about it was like, well, why are people like disgusted by the thing they desire? You know, why is it like gross to sell sex to somebody, but also like you want the sex that they're selling the whole thing, just like, you know, misogyny in a nutshell, but like After the Adult Video News Awards, I think I just, just like, this has always been sort of my lane, I guess, in some way. And and Heidi just has so many amazing quotes from the time about how hypocritical it was of them to bust her and how everybody in Hollywood hired hookers all the time. And, you know, just that this was kind of like part and parcel of Hollywood. And nobody liked it when she, when she turned that rock over.
2: When you say this is the most creatively satisfying thing you've done, why is that, do you think? What was different here?
3: I mean, I think it's like the project is about Heidi Fleiss, but it's also about like how I feel about selling myself in in the world, you know, about how do I feel about, as a person who's been on the internet for a long time, kind of like selling my personality in some way or some aspects of my personality for money how do I feel about it? Can you sell yourself ethically or is it always exploitative in some way? I think blogging really taught me how to not be precious about stuff because it's like, first I did it for no money and then I did it for some money and then I did it for a lot of money and then I did it for no money again. So it's like, you know, you really learn how to like turn it out. And also that your work is like just as valuable when you're getting paid no money for it as when you're getting paid a lot of money for it. And you have to kind of just like wheel and deal your way into convincing people it's valuable, which is what Heidi Fleiss did, you know? <laughs> so I think I also related to that. And a lot of like what I'm interested in about the, the sex economy too is the way in which it's all gig work and everything everyone does now is gig work. Nobody has job security. Everybody's selling themselves in some way.
2: That begs the question: how do you feel about selling yourself on the internet? Can you do it ethically or, or or not?
3: I feel mixed about it constantly. Cause it's like, no, I don't think you can, but also you have to. You know, everybody has to. And you can do it in a way where you maintain a level of control. I think I've always been like that I don't write about my personal life really, you know, and I think a lot of just Early on, it's like a lot of women were writing these confessional essays. And I was like, feels like they only let women write confessional essays. So I'm going to not do that, you know, in keeping my personal life off the Internet in some way. Having things that are like just for me has worked out really well for me, even though there's times where I'm just like, I would like to just tell everybody what's really going on with me. But I know it would actually like temporarily satisfying and long term probably bad, you know. But even with like just selling the podcast, like I hired a publicist and I took some like, you know, glamour photos with my friend Lee Jameson. And I think I made a concerted effort to be like, okay, I'm going to sell myself as much as I can and see if anybody's buying.
2: Was it hard to get to that place?
3: I just think it's like, uh, you know, I'm a millennial, but I think there's some of that like Gen X it's not cool to like sell yourself to it's not cool to want things that's always been with me and i think as a woman too i've always been a little bit like protective of like like my face and body as a product on the internet you know just like and also just felt like there's lots of other better products out there so like i don't need you know my instagram was very like not pictures of me you know and so i think i was like okay I'm going to post face on Maine and like just accept that like that's something I might need to do right now to like help promote this podcast. And honestly, it's been less weird than I expected. I think it's like actually fine. I think it's also because I waited so long to do it that now doing it, I'm like, oh, yeah, everybody does this now. Like I don't feel self-conscious about it in the way I maybe did when people first started posting themselves a lot.
2: Like the shameless road has been paved already.
3: Exactly, I'm ready to be shameless.
2: I think there are lots of people who are not ready to be shameless. Like I talked to a lot of people on the show who are um, uh, launching books. There's this. There's so much shame in the promotional aspect, and I. I mean, I understand it. I feel it too. You know,
3: I think for writers too, it's like there's something sort of embarrassing about it, just to like admit that you want something especially as a playwright, I always had this thing of like, well, I don't want to be out front. I don't want the spotlight on me. I'm not an actor. I want to be like lurking in the back with the cast, you know, accepting the applause, but like, I don't want to be the center of attention like ever. And so I think kind of like making peace with like, look, man, it's fine to be the center of attention when you made something you're proud of. That's why you're making art a little bit too, let's be honest. It's like, you want people to love it and you want them to love you and that's fine. And I made a concerted effort to like completely have no shame, you know, and to just be like, look, if it's if it's a little embarrassing, if it's a little try hard, if I'm like a little Michigan J-Frog out here, like, please love me. Like, that's fine. That's what it is.
2: So you you are, um from the other side of that point, you're saying like, it's not so bad.
3: It's not so bad. I think I I avoided it for a long time because I had this idea, especially when I first started writing, that I could just sell my writing and not have it be attached to like my face and body and voice in this way, you know, that I felt like was a trap for women that if you are selling any aspect of yourself, you have to be selling everything. And I've always just been uncomfortable like being perceived as a physical being, which I think is like why people become writers in a way. And there was a, a long time on the internet when it was like, that was the whole appeal of the internet was you could just be a, a voice, a written voice, and you didn't need to be a face or body. And then when Instagram started, it was like, now you also are a face and body. I think just Heidi inspired me too. I was like, she had such good branding, but it seems like people are digging the podcast and really get what I was going for, which is what I'm really excited about. And I just think Heidi Fleiss is the most fascinating person in the world. She's such a great antihero, you know, and I don't think she would say that she's like the spokesperson for sex workers' rights or women's rights or anything. She just is herself, you know, and just the way she went through this experience with kind of this self deprecating humor, I thought was so, you know, it's so human.
2: It takes a certain kind of person when the cops show up at your door with like police dogs to crack a joke.
3: It's very specific. It's also very Jewish, I'll just say.
2: Yeah, deeply Jewish.
3: And, um, you know, yeah. And I think I, I I have realized from doing it, I did not realize at all when I started just how much I would be like, oh, yeah, like Heidi Fleiss. The reason I'm drawn to this story is because it's like also my story in a way. It's like about Los Angeles, about feeling alienated by a bunch of, like, rich, blonde sorority girls. And, you know, obviously in Heidi's case, she was like, I will become them. And in my case, I was like, I must destroy, I must destroy the city of Los Angeles.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13, wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: Now streaming, only on Disney.
0: My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Aeros Tour.
1: Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. We
0: do, we do. Maybe, maybe. Does anyone here
1: know the lyrics? Maybe, Ruben! The it, the it. Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version. So with four, four additional acoustic songs.
2: Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. So interesting to hear you talk about how much it meant to you to like be in control because I did this interview with Karina years ago now years and years ago six years ago seven years ago something when she was pretty early on with that show and she talked about the same thing just how meaningful it had been to do something on her own and have it like make sense to other people
3: yeah exactly and I and I think a good podcast to me and what I think Karina's podcast is too. It's like, yeah, it should be a personal expression of some kind, you know, it's a little bit of a piece also with like these mad men recaps. I did a long time ago for Grantland that were like very much me working through my own personal life through the veil of like talking about mad men, but also kind of trying to like shoehorn in some, like a lot of like radical sixties leftist history into something like a recap where you're like, people who read this have already watched Mad Men. They know what happened. They want to hear somebody's rambling thoughts about it and also maybe a little bit of context that the show itself isn't providing about politics in the 60s, which was like a thing that show never got into that much that I was always like hoping hoping it would, but it was kind of like not the point of that show, you know?
2: You were one of the, um, the like first Grantland hires. I mean... I remember those Mad Men recaps.
3: And those were the thing that I got paid nothing to do when I was doing them at my blog. And then I suddenly was getting paid for it. And it was like, okay, but I'm not doing anything differently. I'm doing the same thing, but now I get paid for it. And that was like, I've had a lot of experiences like that where it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to keep doing the stuff. And like, hopefully sometimes there will be money for it. Because I do have to think about money, unfortunately. Like, I wish I didn't.
2: It's like I, I'm going to keep cooking the same meal, and sometimes it's going to sell for ten bucks, and sometimes it's going to be free.
3: Yeah, and and sometimes it's going to sell for a hundred bucks, and it'll be the same meal. You yeah. know, and I think anyone who's been in in magazines has seen just like it's not coming back. You know, the money's not coming back. I think to magazines.
2: Are you nostalgic at all for the like Grantland era?
3: No, because I'm very like keep it moving. I think always, and I think just at every point I've been like, what's the next thing? What's, what am I doing now? And and I've always been trying to move towards film and television and wanting to write film and television. So I'm stoked. It feels like it was all training for this. And again, it's just like, I think for me, I think to move out of, there's something also about the ephemeral thing of like turning things out constantly. And then just like, you know, you let go of the balloon and it's like, you never see it again that maybe was a way of me avoiding having to work on one thing consistently that I like just come back to and just work on, you know? Um, and so I think having to like commit to one thing and, and not, and, and be able to commit to it because like, or, you know, cause I got hired to do it and I could just work on it. And, and I was a little afraid of like committing to one big thing for a long time like that, because I'm a little bit, Maybe commitment phobic of stuff like that, you know? I haven't written a book yet, which I also am trying to do. But, you know, yeah, the idea of like, there's just this one big project and it's all on you, and the deadline comes up. If you haven't finished it, like, it's your fault. And I think maybe that's also why I liked working with people, is because I was like, well, then it's not just my, f- you know, we're all in it together. It's not just all on me. And I think Annie Hamilton and Max Silvestri deserve podcast Oscars for their work on the show, and Karen Tonkson, who plays Madame Alex, who's incredible. I'm just so happy with it. I'm just like, when I let myself get in touch with that sort of like control freak directorial impulse that I clearly do have, I was like, oh yeah, this is like, it's fun to do something where you're completely in charge, you know, and to be in charge of other people in that way.
2: Well, you should be happy with it. Show's awesome.
3: Oh, well, thank you. I'm just, I'm glad people are get are listening to it. And it feels like people really get what I was trying to do. And I just wanted to make something that was like funny and like pleasurable to listen to, you know, and, and also fucked up and dark. But like, you know, all the Paul Thomas Anderson movies are a big, also just in, inspiration on me personally, just because I think we have a lot of the same interests and in kind of like the history of LA and the history of California and power and corruption and sex and all the fun stuff.
2: Well, I mean, it comes through in the show. Like the part of the goal was to make it entertaining.
3: Right. To make it entertaining, but also like there's a lot of fucking history in there too. Totally. You know, that was the thing that I really was not sure if people were going to like, you know, cause I'm like, to me, it's really interesting to learn about ev- the history of the sunset strip. And I learned a lot of stuff that I didn't know, you know? But like, does anyone else care about the history of the Sunset Strip? And so for people to be like, yeah, that's really interesting. We do care, you know, even even people that aren't L.A. people to be like, to find that stuff interesting. I'm really stoked about that.
2: Part of the reason that the history stuff in the show works is that it does connect to now and resonates in the moment we are living in. But another reason it works is that it's so obviously interesting to you. You give a shit and therefore you stick with it because it's so obviously important to you. And I feel like that's kind of connected to like, I am going to try and sell this podcast. I'm going to hire a publicist. I'm going to take glamour photos. That's also the like giving a shitness.
3: It's giving a shit. And it's also like, this is what's important to me. Part of the reason I wanted to do the show is because I think we're at a moment with sex work that is very just looking at how nothing had changed and how things had gotten worse, actually, for sex workers since this moment that was such a flashpoint. And I put this porn star named Siri Dahl as the jury forewoman, who's the person in the Heidi Fleiss case who really starts to say, hey, wait a minute, like, this all seems really hypocritical and bad. And like, we got railroaded into voting guilty. But yeah, it's just like, sex work is more illicit than ever in a lot of ways. It's been banned, you know, because of like, People like Peter Thiel saying we don't want, you know, the banks don't want PayPal to pay for stuff that's like sexual in any way. Just the way in that like sex is commerce and and people want to control that. I feel like I'm still just unraveling this stuff always, but um it's such an interesting story. And yeah, I was just I think that's also with good podcasts. I was like, they're all something that the person who's making it is clearly obsessed with. And Yeah, and you don't know if people are going to go with you and be into your obsession the way that you are, but if you're excited about it, they'll be excited about it.
2: Well, they're certainly not going to if you're not all in.
3: Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, I I wanted to make make casino, basically. Casino from Ginger's point of view (laughs) is where I'm always headed, you know?
2: Yeah. Hey, Molly, thanks for doing this.
3: Oh, for sure. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally sorted it out it feels it's been like years in the making
2: literal years but this was the right time this
3: is the right time this is the perfect time and i I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me
2: thanks for listening to long form I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Jackie Sajiko. Susan Peterson handled the show notes. Thanks to them. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Molly Lambert. Her podcast is called Heidi World. You should listen. We'll see you next week.